Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. With the Omicron wave of COVID still in play and the possibility of more variants coming, questions remain about what can be safely done face-to-face. As Dean of the College of Health Sciences at Marquette University, Dr. Bill Cullinan continues to confront the challenge all academic leaders face of developing solutions that work best for his students, faculty, staff, and surrounding community. Dr. Cullinan is also a professor of biomedical sciences at Marquette and director of the Integrative Neuroscience Research Center. His research focuses on understanding the neurobiology of stress and the link between stress and psychiatric illness. Dr. Cullinan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's my pleasure. So I'd like to start first with learning more about you, your background, and what got you interested in neuroscience. Well, that's interesting. You know, I started off uh, thinking I wanted to become a physical therapist. And during that time, I realized I was really more excited about understanding the nervous system. And I guess, as they say, one thing led to another. But ultimately, I wound up um, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Michigan, where we were studying something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is a long way of describing a system that responds to stress and culminates in the release of a powerful hormone you've probably heard of called cortisol. And there's a strong link between too much cortisol, which we call hypercortisolemia, and depressive illness. And so for me, I guess that's where it all started. Yeah, there's no more relevant subject right now than stress and psychiatric illness, it seems, with uh, the last two years of COVID. Yeah, I think uh, we've yet to realize the psychological debt we've incurred from the lockdowns and lack of social interaction that the pandemic has uh, precipitated. Well, let's dive into that. You know, how has your experience been over the past two years as a leader of a large health science school? You know, and how are you guys thinking about the next year ahead? Right. Well, we've had challenges, of course, and we've gone through everything from de-densification, social distancing, masking. And we've been relatively fortunate. We have some on-campus clinics and we don't have a single documented case of transmission between say a client or patient and a therapist or provider in those clinics. You can never know for sure, of course, and that it's hard to prove a negative, but uh, we haven't seen evidence of that. So that was encouraging, Um, but life has been very different. And I still spend some time in the classroom, so I interact even with undergraduate and professional students. And it's remarkable in the current climate, which is a little relaxed from where we were six months ago here in Wisconsin, just how excited students are to be with each other. It's palpable. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I know uh, not just within the student communities, but in general, it feels like people are already booking travel plans and wanting to do that. So I'm curious, what are some of the changes Marquette did during COVID that you think are going to be still around in the next couple of years, outlive the pandemic or endemic, hopefully? Yeah, I think, well, of course, like many schools, we went entirely remote initially. And what that forced us to do was learn how to deliver things remotely uh, and in online and even hybrid formats. The faculty surprised themselves uh, at how adept they were at picking up the technology and have continued to use it in other ways going forward, partly out of necessity, but also partly to enrich courses. So for example, initially we were remote, but then when we came back in hybrid format, you'd always have some cluster of students cycling in and out of quarantine. So you'd have to kind of create an online experience for them until they could be back in person with the rest of the group. 
and we went through some uh, creative applications of technology to make it kind of fair to the entire group. Um, these are really competitive students, so they're really reluctant to allow another group to get an advantage on them. But nevertheless, it seems to be, be working out. Uh, and I think going forward, some of these uh, technologies will be deployed as enrichment tools, you know, when things go back to a completely in-person experience for the most part. Yeah, that consistent with some of the things we're hearing. And, you know, another trend that we're hearing about is just increased demand for positions, uh, healthcare student enrollments. I'd love to hear any any commentary you could have maybe on both the intake at Marquette. Like, have you guys been seeing increased demand? Absolutely. As well as the outtake. Yeah, I think, well, we're a private school. And so price points are a sensitive topic. And so I think increasingly students or their parents or both are looking at the return on investment and the fact that we have an aging demographic and many projected increases in the need for healthcare providers has caused a large increase in the number of applications. To give you just one example, uh, we have a very strong physician assistant studies program here at Marquette University in our college. We have 75 seats in a class and we receive over 2000 applications for those 75 seats. And the average grade point average of an applicant is a 3.8 to 3.9. So this is clearly in the past, you know, medical school territory, but these students don't want to be physicians. What they want is to be physician assistants or perhaps they'll be called physician associates one day, but essentially they're looking for the flexibility of the career, the shorter time to get to be credentialed, uh, the lower debt load, and the ability to change specialties multiple times over the course of a career, something a, a physician can't do without going back and doing a multi-year residency all over again, which is almost never done. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I think uh, for four or five years in a row, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the PA field has been in the top 10 fastest growing specialties. Yeah. U.S. News called it the number one profession in America sometime in the last three to six months. Oh, wow. Okay. I've got to go check that out. And, you know, so that's the supply side, you know, a lot of people are going into the programs and clearly, you know, 75 spots for 2000 applicants is uh, indicative of how competitive things have become to get into these programs and your program. Um, on the flip side, you know, we, we're hearing constantly about burnout among physicians, nurses. I haven't heard as much about PAs, but I assume it's similar. Maybe you have some knowledge about that. Has that been discouraging at all to faculty or students in the program? Because we don't want to be filling up a leaky bucket yeah no I, I you know i can't speak to the whole profession and i would be shocked if that didn't affect the pa profession in, in some way um, but we haven't seen it expressed as dramatically as in the nursing and medical fields involving medical doctors uh, at least so far uh, but i think for all frontline healthcare workers the pandemic has created new sets of stressors and all kinds of complexities as you could imagine but it hasn't deterred admissions or, or matriculation into programs or demand. So um, we're grateful for that, but you know, we're, we're vigilant about it. Absolutely. And so you, you talked about some of the lasting changes potentially that'll happen in the modality of teaching, you know, more virtual options, but what about the content? Are there things that you've changed with the curriculum or plans to change with the curriculum? For example, like value-based medicine, public health, uh, any of those that are happening? All of that. So that's, been evolving even pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, we're at a very um, mission-centric university and our tagline is be the difference. And we want our students to live that. And part of getting to that place or preparing them to, to change the world 
is to be able for them to understand, you know, inequities in healthcare delivery, for, to get them to understand uh, some of the, the larger social and cultural phenomena that are going on all around us and will definitely affect their scope of practice in the years to come. So we want to produce a caring, competent clinician who really has a heart to serve the, the most vulnerable amongst us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, we're hearing a lot more in recent years, partially because of the pandemic, uh, but a lot of because of other things that have happened during the pandemic around diversity, equity, and inclusion, serving rural areas, serving uh, urban centers, uh, making sure that the physician, PA, health professional workforce looks like our general societal uh, structure as well. Sure. And in fact, a lot of this, will, it comes very organically from the students. So I'll just give you two quick examples. Some 40% of our, I mean, since we're talking about PA, but this applies to all of the other professions we train in as well. 40% choose positions or jobs in serving underserved populations. So I think that's a testament to the extent that, you know, what they're getting in the program is making a difference when they leave us and it's sticking. The other thing is the students themselves are very keen to raise awareness and funds for scholarships for classmates who are from exactly these diverse backgrounds with the whole uh, notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so they're uh, actually driving the effort in some cases to make this happen. And it's something that most folks want to get behind. That's awesome. That's really great to see that. And um, we just last week released our Raise Line scholarships. We've been running this program for several years and we're able to give six health professional students about $10,000 in scholarships. So that's another systemic change I'm hoping to see. I'm curious, you know, given your position and, and involvement in, in training so many healthcare professionals, I wonder if because of the pandemic, there'll be more governmental support and more universities will be able to offer lower tuition or free tuition. You know, we work with NYU and Kaiser Permanente as two examples, and their med student classes are tuition free at this point because of generous private donations. But I wonder if society will, you know, will not just call healthcare professionals healthcare heroes, but in fact, help help make sure that they aren't graduating with hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of debt. Yeah, the debt can be crushing. And it's something, you know, we're all sensitive to, especially for medical doctors because of, of the length of training and the cost. Uh, but I guess it remains to be seen how successful we'll be in finding private partners. But kudos to you and Kaiser for supporting NYU, uh, because that's as good as it gets, uh, free tuition for medical school, and it's virtually unparalleled. Yeah, no, that's why I made such big headlines when NYU and Kaiser did that. Switching gears a bit to the other hat you wear, being director of the Integrative Neuroscience Research Center. So neuroscience is very close to my heart. That was my college thesis. Uh, I was considering going into the MD PhD program in neuroscience. My co-founder at Osmosis, Ryan Haynes, actually got a PhD in neuroscience at Cambridge, uh, looking at decision-making. Would love to hear more about kind of your research as well as what the center does and maybe if there are any initiatives or projects that dovetail with the health professional student education that, that you do too. Sure, I could talk for a long time about this, but the center essentially has the mission of bringing together collaborators from across our campus and beyond to share ideas and explore common interests. But I think what we have been able to build partly through the center is an interesting cluster of neuroscientists that we can split out into what I would call three functional domains, which collectively form the underpinnings of understanding mental health and mental illness. So uh, having some training and having done a thesis on this, you'll understand that 
you know, it's well known that the brain has a reward circuitry, a, a motive circuit. And, and that's part of the area that we hired around initially with a series of researchers interested in addiction. Uh, it's also the case that the limbic system or the emotional brain is a part of neuroscience that's coming into sharper focus. There's lots of interest. And we hired a series of a half a dozen scientists who focus on that. And more recently, we've been trying to cluster higher around the prefrontal cortex, the you know, executive decision-making area of the brain, the brain that is responsible for impulse inhibition, the part of the brain that's the last to fully develop through myelination at age 26 or so, which ironically, auto insurance companies have known for decades because that's when your rates go down. Uh, we just didn't have the mechanism until more recently. Nevertheless, when you put those three domains together, it's clear to anybody with training in this area that they overlap. And they anatomically overlap. And so this creates a synergy across the group that's very distinctive, if not unique. And so we've been able to hire folks away, or let's just say young scientists who are considering some of the most elite institutions in the country uh, to this group. I think for each other more than anything else. Uh, and that's because they know that as soon as they're ready and they get their research program launched and off the ground, they're going to have five or six instant collaborators uh, right there within their own department, you know, next door. And there's a great spirit among these scientists. They all have access to each other's labs. They share equipment and space. They write grants together. They co-publish. And the best thing is, in addition to the positive effects it has for postdocs and graduate students, it also involves undergraduate research experiences that are considered perhaps the highest impact things happening on college campuses. So we're not talking about, you know, standing in the shadow of the professor senior year uh, during a capstone project. We're talking about maybe starting in a summer in a 10 week paid summer research program, latching onto a lab, you know, learning a skill that you contribute to the laboratory team over the next four to six semesters for credit or for pay, and winding up as a co-author on a manuscript and published paper, perhaps traveling to a national meeting to present original data. This is a really uh, neat opportunity for some 50 undergraduate students that we put through this program each year. And it's self-funded. That's a whole nother story. We created a business, the profits of which completely fund this program. And we also have a benefactor who supplements the stipends, but um, it's working on a lot of levels and we're really excited about it. I'm very happy to hear that because actually before osmosis, what got me interested in education in the first place, I used to do a lot of research in high school and in college. A lot of it I mentioned is neuroscience. I went to the Society for Neuroscience and American Academy of Neurology conferences multiple times. Talk about an overwhelming meeting, huh? The Society for Neuroscience. Oh, SFN, it's the largest meeting. You know, I feel like the largest academic meeting. And things have come full circle because the research, while I did not pursue a PhD, I instead pursued medical school and then business school too, and then started osmosis to do education, a lot of the skills you pick up as a student researcher are vastly applicable. Writing skills, presenting skills, analytical thought, uh, learning about a whole new fields and learning about you know, R, Python, if that's what you need for your research. And those skills are really translatable into the business world, into many other fields. And so it's really good to hear that that's something that you guys have prioritized at Marquette, even at the undergraduate level, because not many schools seem to really care about undergraduate level researchers. Well, you know, we're really serious about critical thinking skills and analytical thinking that you described that comes with research. 
you know, it's a, it's a habit of mind and it changes the way you really approach life, I believe, because you don't take things for granted and you want to see evidence and you want to challenge your own biases. And these are things that, you know, science helps you to cultivate. Even beyond that, you know, getting back to the education piece, we are trying to, or at least striving to get our students to think clinically very early in their undergraduate careers, as early as sophomore year. We have a course here called Clinical Human Anatomy, which covers a lot of breath. It's a lot, it's intense. It's compared to the intensity of organic chemistry, okay? So you know that wherever you go, organic chemistry is you know, a beast, and that's probably why professional schools use it as a benchmark, because they figure if you can do well in that while carrying a full academic load, well, you'll probably do okay in medical school. But the relevance of, say, an anatomy course versus an organic chemistry course to what you're going to do in your future as a physician couldn't be more different. Our students then have the opportunity to dissect a human cadaver like a first year medical student would as second semester sophomores. Okay, so you wanna talk about an engaged group of students, they're, they're just on fire. And then their curriculum, which is very medical, it's, it's actually called biomedical sciences, just like the department, um, becomes progressively more cellular and molecular. So after anatomy, of course, physiology, biochemistry, cell biology, molecular genetics, a macro to micro progression. And so that throughout it, students are never asking the question that all educators hate to hear, which is, what do we need to know this for? It's abundantly clear what we need to know this for. We were just there and now we're taking it deeper and deeper and deeper. And so they can always connect it back to the human body. Uh, we're not asking them memorization questions. You know, I teach one of the anatomy courses and I tell them, at never will I show you a picture of an anatomical body part with an arrow pointing to something saying, what do we call this? We're going to assume you know that. What we want you to do is answer this question. A patient comes into your office. They can move this way, but not that. They can feel these sensations, but not those. Tell us where the problem is and you can do it. Or alternatively, here's a problem in uh, the vascular tree, predict the downstream consequences in terms of signs and symptoms, and they can do that too. And so for students, like that's fun, but there's an initial investment on the front end that, that takes a lot of time and effort. But once they can do it, they're, they're on a whole nother level of engagement and are willing to work really hard. So that's been a lot of fun to be a part of because if you're an educator, there's nothing better than an engaged class. I love that. I love that example because, yeah, definitely I've had professors who were very much rote memorization and it's, you know, what is what does a type two alveolar cell do? And it's very easy to write those questions, but very hard, very kind of useless table stakes versus the, you know, circle of Willis, you know, you have a stroke here in the circle of Willis, you know, what are the downstream effects, as you mentioned, one of the reasons, so you may or may not know, but a couple, I think when we first started talking to you for getting you on the podcast, we were an independent company, we just recently joined Elsevier, which, you know, uh, obviously makes Gray's Anatomy, Nedra's Anatomy, and then our colleagues at 3D4 Medical just came out with the first female body 3D anatomy model. So very big anatomy education institution. And one of the reasons we're really excited is because they're starting to offer all these diverse and inclusive models. You know, we talked about trying to train more diverse workforce. Even a decade ago when I started at Hopkins Med School, and I'm sure when you were training too, like most of the anatomical figures are, are men, white men. And like now it's very much diverse gender, skin tones, ages, et cetera. So it's kind of an interesting time in health education. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And Elsevier, well, what can you say? I mean, they do great stuff. 
I'm actually part of the International Advisory Board for Netter's Atlas, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, from the seventh edition and beyond. So uh, that's uh, that's been a lot of fun, too. That's awesome. I should tell Marius Lucas, and who's at St. George, and uh, Kathleen Reed at, at Elsevier, Maddie Hyde, who I know well. So I'll, I'll make that connection later. But I have two more questions for you. Um, well, actually, three. One is, since you're a neuroscientist, one thing I, I'm just personally interested in is I realized a decade ago when I was in neuroscience training, the ganglia, you know, basal ganglia, I learned about that several times, uh, but other ganglia too. I did spinal cord research in Miami and there were a lot of dorsal root ganglia I was looking at. What's interesting is it's literally my name. If you look at my last name, Gaglani, it's an anagram of ganglia. Oh, wow. And I'm trying to explain to people what a ganglia does, like people who don't know medicine, mm -hmm. where, you know, how do you explain the basal ganglia? It does everything. It almost feels like that, not just movement, but also emotion and whatnot. Right. How would you explain ganglia to someone? I'm just not to quiz you, but well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is you know the classic definition of a collection of nerve cells in the peripheral nervous system as a ganglia versus a nucleus, which would be the same thing in the central nervous system. Although the basal ganglia, ironically, are nuclei in the central nervous system, so they've been misnamed all along. And if you start looking at some of the more recent uh, anatomy textbooks, they're calling them basal nuclei. But I'm convinced that the clinical literature will continue to call them basal ganglia for another 100 years because they're real stubborn about change. <laughs> but um, in the periphery, obviously, ganglia serve a series of functions. I mean, they're critical in the sensory system because they contain those pseudo unipolar cells that act as a conduits for sensory signals to make it from the periphery to perception, uh, typically on the opposite side of the brain in the sensory cortex. <laughs> Uh, but the basal ganglia or basal nuclei in the forebrain, well, that's something that I'm very fascinated about as well, because in some of the teaching that I do, we cover motor systems. And you're right, there are multiple parallel channels through the basal ganglia that affect everything from emotion and affect to just classical movement. But I'm particularly fascinated with motor function and the fact that the basal ganglia and also to an extent the cerebellum cooperate or collaborate to not only plan and program complex motor function, like throwing a ball, uh, and to keep it uh, of high fidelity, to correct errors in almost real time. And if you think about the capacity of the motor areas of the brain to do that, they're just simply not big enough. There's not enough information processing capacity in the pre-central gyrus to do you know, a, a complex motor act because it's just such a complicated thing. And so what I'm fascinated is, is the fact that if you look at the circuitry through the basal thing, you know, there's this massive cortical input that's funneled back to the motor areas of the brain. And presumably it's in that loop or so-called re-entrant pathway that motor planning and programming takes place. And as we get better and better at perfecting a motor act, like say free throw shooting, which is another obsession of mine, um, there's synaptic strengthening at all the nodes along the way, whether you're in the direct pathway or the indirect pathway and all the rest. But think about this, and this isn't always taught in neuroscience courses, but if you look at it, the first descending input to the striatum in the basal ganglia pathway comes from the entire cortical mantle, whereas what returns goes only to the motor areas of the brain, either the motor cortex or pre or supplementary motor cortex, which to me says the entire brain in a very real way participates in motor actions of this type that are complex. 
So if you think about what takes place when you throw a ball, right? All of the different motions taking place, and we'll just consider the upper extremity, you know, the external rotation, abduction, that has to be then reversed and turned into flexion, internal rotation, and, uh, and then of course, if you're extending your elbow or putting a spin on your wrist more, all of that involves you know, very precisely timed volleys of, of activity, leaving the motor cortex, crossing to the other side of the spinal cord, going to just the precisely correct levels of the spinal cord, to just the precisely correct motor neuron pools, to leave through the precisely correct peripheral nerves, to go to the precisely correct muscles in exactly the precisely correct sequence. It's nearly miraculous. And I tell the students, you're a walking, talking miracle. The fact that you can stand up and walk out of this room is, in neurological terms, amazing. And that resonates with people when they compare the anatomy to what I've just said. Uh, and that's just the basal ganglius role. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> As they often are, but no, that's, I love that. I mean, so I kind of want to go check out your next neuroscience class. <laughs> well, we have fun. My last question is I want to be respectful of your time is um, just what advice would you give? I mean, I'm sure you give your students advice all the time, but what advice would you give to our audience of over 2.3 million current and future healthcare professional students about approaching their careers in, in science and in healthcare? Well, I think, you know, when you embark on something as long and arduous, uh, it's easy to lose sight of the prize. That is, you know, you're going to be tested. You're going to be stressed. You're going to make sacrifices. You know, you're going to make sacrifices in your social life during your training because it takes time to do these things successfully. The punchline is, if and this assumes that you're on the right track and you and you're properly motivated. Um, it's all worth it. It's all completely worth the effort that you're going to put in. And if you have chosen wisely and you're on the right course, you're not really working a job like everyone else for the rest of your life. Think about what that's worth and keep your eye on that. I love that. That's great parting wisdom. And empirically, I can say the same. You know, I haven't felt I've been working on osmosis whenever I felt in flow because of what we're doing. So Dr. Cullinan, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know we could have spoken for several hours more, but I appreciate you taking the time and more importantly, the work that you do to raise line and train the next generation of health providers. It's been a privilege and a pleasure and nice to meet you. To meet you too. And with that, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>